0: everybody. Hi, I'm Mary Kearney, I'm the Director of the Gender Studies Program here at Notre Dame. I'm also an Associate Professor in the Film, Television, and Theater Department. Um, before we officially begin, I was, I'm not supposed to be up here with all of you, but I wanted to extend a warm welcome on behalf of the Gender Studies Program to all of you who have come this afternoon, as well as to our esteemed guests um, who drove up here from Bloomington, um, from Indiana University, and the Kinsey Institute. I also want to give a huge shout out um, to our Trioda Honor Society members as well as Pam Butler and Lindsay Breitweiser for hosting this event so that we can hear directly from experts about gender affirming care for youth and have an open and honest discussion with an eye toward not just critical thinking about these issues, but also policy reform and social justice. This is an important and long overdue conversation on this campus. So, I'm really glad that our program can serve as a catalyst for critical and compassionate dialogues about these issues. So, welcome everybody. Thanks to Trioda. And now, over to our official MC, Sarah Beruman. <laughs>
1: I'm Sara Baruman, and I'm a senior gender studies and anthropology student here at Notre Dame. I'm also a member of the Trioda Honor Society, and today I'm also here representing TREES, our local transgender resource enrichment and educational services. You can find me back there in the corner, we have some handouts and stuff if you're interested, as well as some transgender um, flag stickers, so come by and get that free stuff. I would like to welcome all of you here today on behalf of the Gender Studies Program. As well as the Trio to Honor Society. We decided to host this event in response to a Notre Dame student group who invited representatives from a recognized anti LGBTQ organization to speak on campus. This event occurred last semester and was titled Transgender Medicine and Children. The event was based in disinformation and pseudoscience. So the students and faculty of the Gender Studies program felt that it was our duty to hold an event with experts in the field to lead a more thoughtful, and evidence-based discussion about gender-affirming care for youth. So thank you all for being here, and I would now like to introduce Professor Oh, Thank you, everybody. Hi.
2: <laughs> so we're here to introduce uh, our speakers tonight. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming today. We're going to introduce them in order um, of speaker. And I'm gonna start with Dr. Stephanie Sanders. Uh, She is the Provost Professor of Gender Studies at Indiana University and a senior scientist at the Kinsey Institute. Her research conducted in the United States and Scandinavia addresses sexual behavior, gender difference and psychological and physical development, effects of prenatal hormones and drugs on human development, women's health and well-being, and biophysiological perspectives on debates in feminist theory. She's also been twice appointed interim director of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University, and she recently served as president of the Society for Scientific Study of Sexuality, which some might know as QS. Um, She also has a much longer biography that you can find on your uh, insert. She has
3: asked to cut it short so you can get started. I'm Pam Butler. I'm the Associate Director of the Gender Studies Program, and these are the last of the introductions. We're gonna get them all out of the way and then dive in for the next hour plus. Um, But our second panelist will be Dr. J. Dennis Fortenberry, who is Professor of Pediatrics and the Chief of Adolescent Medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine. Dr. Fortenberry is a member of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine, the International Academy for Sex Research, the American STD Association, and the Society the Society for Scientific Study of Sex, or triple S, quadruple S. What is it? For, I Quad us, us. Thank you. Um, he's past president of the International Academy for Sex Research, president of the American STD Association, and past chair of the board of directors of the American Sexual Health Association. His contributions have been recognized by the American STD Association Achievement Award in 2009, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine Lifetime Achievement Award in 2014, though you can see his lifetime of work is not yet over, Um, and the Society for Scientific Study of Sex Lifetime Contributions Award in 2017. Clinically, Dr. Fortenberry directs the Child and Adolescent Gender Health Program at Riley Hospital for Children at IU Health. His research program has four major elements, adolescent health, sexuality and sexual health, sexually transmitted infections, and HIV prevention and treatment for adolescents. Dr. Fortenberry has received federal research support continuously since 1987, and has published more than 320 commentaries of book chapters and peer reviewed papers in the field. Our third speaker will be Dr. Richard A. Brandon Friedman, who is a PhD, LCSW and LCAC, and also a proud graduate of the University of Notre Dame, class of 2004 and 2005, with degrees in architecture and psychology. Welcome back. Um, Dr. Brandon Friedman is an assistant professor in the Indiana University School of Social Work and the Social Work Services Supervisor for the Gender Health Clinic at Riley Hospital for Children at IU Health. His academic foci include sexual and gender identity development among youth, youth sexual well-being, LGBTQ plus identity development, youth sexual behaviors, and addressing sexuality within the child welfare system. As a clinician, he has worked with youth in schools and in the child welfare system for more than 10 years, and has worked with youth who identify as sexual minorities for more than 15. Dr. Brandon Freeman currently serves as a member of the executive board of Gender Nexus, is the chair of the Indiana chapter of the National Association of Social Workers, Sexual Orientation, and Gender Identity Committee, and a counselor for the Council on Social Work Education's Council on Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity and Expression. We're very happy that you're here. Okay, and
2: finally, Liana Jo, who is the Director of Library and Special Collections at the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. She's responsible for the direction of the Kinsey Institute's Library and Collections, which chronicles more than 2,000 years of human history. These materials include rare books, records, manuscripts, correspondence, fine art and artifacts, photography media, scholarly publications, and popular cultural materials that have documented and shaped the world's understanding of human sexuality and diversity. Additionally, she leads efforts to organize, develop, and preserve the library collections um, in the archives to ensure continued access by researchers around the world, and she is the first um, person to say, come to the archives. She She will tell you this, come to the archives, it's so close. So we wanna thank everybody for coming. We hope everyone will enjoy this discussion and we'll have Q and A after some presentations.
3: Yeah, so we'll uh, go in the order we just introduced, starting with Dr. Sanders and then we'll open it up for question and answer and discussion. And we have a wireless microphone that Professor Breitweiser is gonna run around the room. So please speak into the microphone because we are recording this event for folks who couldn't be here today. Thank you. Okay, so I'm gonna
4: start us off um, with a little bit of kind of background to orient those of you who may not be in gender studies. And uh, specifically I want to have us think about these, these uh, concepts of sex, gender, and sexual orientation. And I'm not going to talk too much today about sexual orientation, but the point here is that often, particularly with respect to the topic today, people think of sex and gender as the same thing. They're not. And um, but they're not really completely separable either. And so, but for what we have to talk about today, it's really important that we think about sex and we think about gender. Um, We may have time to talk about sexual orientation, but certainly each informs the other, and even sexual orientation is always judged by the gender of the parties involved. So, um, but I won't say more about that now. The point I'm trying to make in this slide beyond the overlapping concepts is also to point out to you Um, that each of these concepts is multidimensional and we know they're non-binary. And I'm going to focus on gender in the next slide, but let me mention the thing of sex, okay? What about sex? Well, some people think it's pretty simple, right? There are males and there are females. What can we ask? What's a person's sex? And I would say, well, there's a lot of dimensions of sex, right? We can think about our chromosomes, we can think about gonads, we can think about hormones, we can think about internal organs, we can think about external genitals, right? And it turns out that not everyone has all those things lined up consistently, and that is a situation called intersex. Medicine currently refers this as a disorder of sex development. Again, that's beyond the scope of today's topic, but even something simple, we think simple, as sex, is not that simple genders more so in terms of complications. So um, I want to just talk about some of what I'm now saying sex gender variables, but the psychological and social ones. And so the first one I want to talk about, and this can happen either by prenatal diagnosis, or it could be happening when the baby is born and the doc looks between the legs and says, it's a boy, it's a girl. Or, oh, um, maybe we need to investigate further. That sometimes happens. But what's happening here is that based on, based on the size of a phallus, a pronouncement is made about the presumed gender of that person, right, the presumed gender. The the idea is that people take a guess, right, Um, they think that, because for most people these things kind of line up, right, and so they, they already are imagining a life, a gendered life for that child. So. What our assigned sex gender is will determine how people react to us in those early stages of our life, what parents think we are, what society thinks we are, and usually the gender in which you're reared. But important to the topic today is our gender identity, which we form over time. It's usually formed fairly early in life. And that's what we know about ourselves inside. Okay? And I'll talk more about that in the next slide. We can also talk about gender role, and that's what society says, and this varies from place to place, historical time, geographical location, what is typically considered masculine or feminine. Again, independent dimensions may line up, may not. And then gender expression, the degree to which an individual conforms or doesn't conform to those societal ideas of masculinity and femininity. I just want to point out that you might think the first step is pretty straightforward right that wow that's just biology there you know putting a person in a category but it's actually a social process right authorities come to an agreement about what size phallus constitutes a penis versus a clitoris right? and then estimates are made about wealth and your gender will be classified according to that phallus when we walk around we make assumptions about people. We don't actually look down at people's pants even, right? But we read their gender expression and we make assumptions about their biology and about their gender identity. So we want to do as we go forward. Now, gender identity. So gender identity, I'm just gonna read these, it's that inner sense of what we are a girl, woman, femaleness, boy, man, maleness, transgender, um, you know, uh, genderqueer, non-binary, some people identify as intersex, others do not, and it is a major part of our self-concept. If you think about yourself, it's something that's going to be, when you describe yourself, it's going to be right up there on the top of the list. And that may or may not be congruent with your sex, gender of assignment. And it's not necessarily correlated, correlated with sexual orientation. We know from the literature that gender uh, identity is established fairly early, and it's resistant to change. Imagine yourselves if somebody comes in, whatever your gender identity is right now, and somebody came to you and said, okay, we're going to change that. We're wrong. You need to be belong in another category. It would be very hard to do that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> But most, for most people, it's your gender identity is fairly stable across the lifespan, but not for all people. And in our society, we have a strong belief that gender is binary, but we know increasingly we see people for whom that is not the case. They fall in between. They may adopt adopted identity as transgender, gender queer. Some transgender people definitely subscribe to a binary. Others do not. And the important thing is we can't determine it without asking because it is personal. Now. Terms transgender, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I had these Wait, all. Right, I'll try. Wow, this is bad. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so what about the terms transgender and, and gender nonconforming? We're talking about a person whose gender identity or gender role and expression does not match his, her, their sex of assignment. Okay. Not all transgender people or gender nonconforming people self identify as transgender. We have other categories, right? Gender non-binary, gender fluid, agender, gender queer. Um, you may hear the term transsexual, and some people use that, but it's mostly an older term. It was very specifically used to um, indicate desire to or a completion of a, uh, a usually a surgical intervention on the body. And these concepts are distinct from intersex. Um, Although some of the issues are the same, and some people deal medically with both. And for those whose um, gender identity and their expression match their sex gender of assignment at birth, we call those people cisgender. So turning to experts, there's a World uh, Professional Association of Transgender Health, they do set up standards of care, and I wanted to share some quotes from those standards of care that might be important for you. Uh, being transsexual, transgender, or gender non-conforming is, not, is a matter of diversity, not pathology. The expression of gender characteristics, including identities, that are not stereotypically associated with one's assigned sex at birth is a common and culturally diverse human phenomenon that should not be judged as inherently pathological or negative. They do point to much of the literature, though, that shows that the stigma Associated with being gender nonconforming or transgender leads to prejudice and discrimination, which can lead that individual to experience minority stress, which can have negative impacts on their mental and physical health. They also go on to say that gender nonconformity is not the same as gender dysphoria. This is important. Um, gender nonconformity refers to the extent to which. One's um, identity, role, expression differs from the cultural norms prescribed for people with that particular sex assignment. And gender dysphoria is about the discomfort, okay? the discomfort or distress caused when there's a discrepancy. Only some gender non conforming people experience gender dysphoria at some point in their lives. Now, in terms of what the experts actually say, The experts actually say that developmentally appropriate gender affirmation interventions are recommended. And these are are just some of the organizations that say this officially. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, the American Psychological Association, and the American Psychiatric Association. And when we talk about gender affirmation, there are different stages of it. the first might be social affirmation, adopting hairstyle, clothing, pronouns, etc. And we do have some evidence. I'm only going to cite a few studies here. Um, but a study by Olson found that socially transitioned children, transgender children between the ages of three and 12, um, did not differ on depression, and they only had slightly elevated anxiety scores compared to population and sibling controls. The next step might be the legal affirmation, name and gender markers being changed on legal documents. And imagine how important that is. If your presentation does not match your ID and you go to get a job or you go to open an account, people that's problematic for people. In fact, lack of legal documentation that matches gender identity often is one of the reasons people turn to other forms of raising money because this leads to poverty because of lack in adulthood. We're not talking about kids for the most part there. And then our panelists will talk more about medical affirmation. Um, using gonadotropin, releasing hormone um, analogs to suppress puberty. Giving cross-sex hormones to develop secondary sex characteristics or other in, of the other biological sex. And I just have a couple of citations here about what we know about that and the outcomes. A uh, study by Turbin looked at um, they actually looked at adults. Adults who had wanted pubertal suppression when they were young, transgender adults who wanted it when they were young, and they compared the ones who got it versus the ones who didn't. And they found that the ones who got the suppression had lower odds of lifetime suicide ideation, which suggests this is a very important intervention. Um, Another study um, by Mafuta et al, looked at transgender youth under 18 and found that gender-affirming cross-sex hormone treatment is associated with improvements in mental health and quality of life. And then we can look at surgical affirmations. So that would be surgery to feminize or masculinize features, uh, hair distribution, chests, uh, genitalia, internal organs, etc. And generally speaking, these surgical interventions are not performed on the youngest. This. we'll be talking about that more, um, but one study looked at the uh, transgender youth who had chest affirming, chest wall masculization, found that their mental health and well-being was improved. And then a, a longitudinal study followed <clears throat> people who first had pubertal suppression, then cross-sex hormones, and then gen, uh, gender-affirming surgeries. And they assessed them psychologically before their puberty was suppressed, at the start of the cross-sex hormones, and then a year or more after their surgeries. And what they found was that gender dysphoria was alleviated and psychological functioning steadily improved. Well-being was similar to or better than same-age adult, young adults from the general population. And so again, there is evidence that these are helpful interventions. And then just one last thing, and that's a a recent uh, uh, the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey recently included um, some questions on gender identity, and we need to think about the tough road it is for transgender kids, right? And so these graphs—they're not real clear, but I think they can see the point. The yellow are (coughs) cisgender kids, high school kids, and the um, pink is for transgender high school kids, and showing that attempted suicide in the past year is much higher among transgender kids. Seriously considering suicide in the past year, much higher. Feeling sad, and hopeless for two weeks or more in the past year, much higher. Victimization, experiencing sexual violence in the past 12 months. Being threatened or injured with a weapon at school in the past 12 months. And feeling unsafe going to school or from school in the last 30 days is much higher. And the current estimates from this study are that 1.8% of the students indicated that they were transgender. So, on that note, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Fortenberry, who will talk more about direct experience.
5: Thank you, Steph. So on this slide, since the topic here is affirming care. You may think that I'm assuming that this has to do with what we do in the clinics, but I'm talking to you who work in the world, who live in the world, who interact in all sorts of places with people. And there are two things on this slide that help you be affirming. If you do them every time, with every person that you encounter. If you get my name right, and get my pronouns right, I've given you, from me, what you need to do to treat me in an affirming way. I haven't come out to you, you still don't know, what my genitals look like, and I'm not going to tell you. But I've given you that information that you need to treat me with respect, with dignity, and you've, you've given me the chance, then, to respond to you likewise. When I work with people in our clinic, what I expect of every person in our clinic that's a professional is this. We begin every one of our encounters with, hi, my name's Dr. Fortenberry, he, him, his. And sometimes I abbreviate it. If you take nothing else away from this evening, if you have that as part of your standard courtesy you owe to every other citizen of the world, then this would have been a successful life. So I thought the way that I would do this is try to give you a sense of what we see in the clinics. Steph's already given you a sense of some of the medical parts. Some of those, but what I wanted to do is try to give you some of the stories. Just to give you a sense of what that's like. that often feels like a black box to people. I'm just going to tell you, and in medicine we do case histories. So I'm going to do case histories. you know, divide it into the developmental points that are relevant to us clinically. So I'm going to start with this issue of gender dysphoria in prepubertal children. Our youngest patient in our clinic was three years old when they first came to us. You notice I used they. Get comfortable with it. I realize your fifth grade grammar teacher spoke harshly to you if you used those pronouns, but they are an, an integral part of doing this correctly and doing this well. For many people, if you miss that, you've missed them. So a five-year-old birth assigned male is seen for increasingly frequent temper tantrums. Pantrums associated with dressing for school, just getting up to go to school. So think about that. It's every day. It's all day. That's what dysphoria is. It doesn't go away. You don't sleep it off. You don't drug it off. It never goes away. That's dysphoria. And think about being five years old. And you've got 85 years of this coming. Parents report consistent gender atypical behavior since three years of age, including preference for dolls, dresses for school, and insistence on being a girl instead of a boy. Insistence. Now, if you ask an average three-year-old, they will tell you fairly clearly most of the time exactly who they are. And they can do it reliably, repeatedly, and with increasing resistance if you push them. Because they know who they are. What we take as gender-affirming approaches in our clinic is exactly that kind of respect. If a child tells you who they are, that's who they are. That's gender affirmation. The parents are particularly distressed, and this is where it gets uncomfortable in the clinic, about abrasions on the penis and scrotum caused by the child's vigorous scrubbing with the cloth to wash away the thing so that I can look like mommy. So these stories go with that kind of uh, theme often. It can be Mommy, I want to crawl back in your belly so God can correct them the mistake that they made when I was in your tummy. Because it's wrong. That's a pretty tough thing to hear from a four or five-year-old. A child psychologist finds no evidence of psychopathology and recommends an approach that <coughs> supports expressed gender. That's all that we do clinically with pre children. There are no hormones, there's no surgery, this is just supporting this child to express themselves as they experience themselves. It doesn't sound really complicated, but if you think about the excitement, the intense investment that our culture invests in, is it a boy or a girl? Do we do pink or do we do blue? A gender reveal party, there's a concept. That's why this is important. The parents, however, and this is where it gets complicated because we do have to do a lot of work with parents, they believe the child should be required to behave in a manner consistent with the purpose on the set. Now, that's a, that's a perspective that many people take, and there are still a lot of professionals, especially in the United States and Canada, that still take this perspective their perspective is gender is a tough thing to get wrong in in the United States. It's associated with violence, it's associated with being ostracized, stigmatized, put aside, and looked over. Those are all reasons that they say it's better for our kid to grow up, even if it's hard for them. In this case, as a boy, because being a boy and even if you're a sissy boy, is better than a boy that acts like a girl and thinks they're a girl. Those are important distinctions. But this is where we also see these children who have been brought to their gender by force, in a sense that they've been physically punished, sometimes fairly vigorously so, sometimes hurtfully so. That's pre-pubertal children. Puberty is a big thing. God, that was wise. <laughs> <laughs> but for, for kids with gender dysphoria, it's particularly challenging because all of a sudden, this particular kid, think about them, they're going along, they want breasts, they're going to get breasts, they're going to have a period. Except, accept, accept that's not. What they get is penis that gets bigger, they get little red wrinkles on their scrotum, and things don't happen the way they're supposed to. And the dysphoria goes up hugely at that point. Even thinking about that, anticipating it, causes big increases in dysphoria about age 10 to 11. And we often see increases in suicidal ideation, behavior cutting, other kinds of self harming behaviors about that time. That's where puberty blockers that Steph Frenchman come into kind of play as a medical therapy to address gender dysphoria. In peripubertal children, then, that's the frame. And this is one that captures that. An 11 year old birth assigned female is seen for multiple self inflicted box cutter lacerations on the abdomen and upper thighs. Notice there are no pronouns in this particular case because when this particular individual was seen for the first time, no one asked for their pronouns. The patient allows examinations of the cuts, but adamantly rejects a more comprehensive examination. The reason why is because this kid's body doesn't match the body that they experience, And seeing that, being seen that way. Is the equivalent for one of you to stand up and undress right up here. That's what being revealed means to young people with gender dysphoria. We often don't do physical exams in our clinic, especially with first visits, because of that sense that we want to protect their sense of who they are as best we can. The patient denies onset of menstrual periods. And suicidal intention with the cutting, which is common, but reports thinking about suicide sometimes when taking baths. Why do you get suicidal when taking a bath? Because you're naked to yourself. And that self, uh, when revealed, is hard to look at. The patient becomes agitated when referred to as she during a discussion with parents angrily reports hating being a girl, and later notes feeling depressed. I love working with with young people because, this is a quote from them a million times a day when this happens. And in a private interview, some of this is lumping some time together. The patient asks if there's anything that will keep these from getting bigger if there's medicine to prevent menstrual periods forever. That's the reason we think that considering puberty and hormones is important because it helps reduce this kind of disorder. It doesn't make it go away because it doesn't change what's here, but it does suspend it for a while and lets this young person come into a place where they're better ready. To work through some of these other things, especially the initiation of hormones, if that's where they're going, with people after puberty, whether they've been on blockers or not. So this is a, this is one that's a bit different, and you'll see some of this. A 15-year-old birth-assigned female identifies as male. This, in this case, this person did tell us who they were. They gave us pronouns: he, him, his fully socially transitioned with family, including legal name change, birth certificate change. All of those are things that take a fair amount of investment from a young person to get done. And it's not always easy. He binds his breasts, and I use this really particularly to challenge you to get used to men with breasts, men with uteruses, men with ovaries, men with vulvas, men with vaginas women with penises. me All of those things are important. Rearrangements and working with people I think really usefully helps us do. Part of the thing that has been the greatest experience in my professional career is being forced to rearrange the way I think about the world and the reason is these young people taught that to me. He's hospitalized at 13 for suicide attempts. Probably 40% of our kids have been moderately or severely suicidal attempts. And his voice. Think about male puberty. What male puberty does. Uh, um, what male puberty does. What you expect it to do. And he doesn't have that. He still has a voice that, according to him, gets really, really high-pitched when he's mad. And this period's really, really bother him. And that's all the time. He reports attraction to females and males, and now we're shifting from gender to the challenges that we face with young people exploring their sexuality within the context of the to both females and males and is currently in his first romantic and sexual relationship with a person with penis and testicles. I don't ask for gender about partners, I ask what what sex organs they bring to the show and how they're employed or deployed. Masturbation and front hole sex exacerbates the dysphoria even when it feels good. Think about the joy of masturbation and being so upset by the organs that you're masturbating with that you can't even enjoy it to its maximum. This is why I do what I do. These are why this is important. So I'm going to finish with a couple of things. This is from a paper, actually from Jack Turbin, who Steph mentioned. Ten things that, that people young people want their doctors to know. I also think they want all of us to know some of this. Sexuality and gender, two different things. we have already talked about that. They're not, they relate in many ways, but they're not the same. Talking about this is really uncomfortable. In part because these are people who've been silenced for much of their life. They've been told that the way they act, the way they express themselves, the way they do things, the, Aren't correct. They got it wrong. And so a lot of kids just shut down. They don't talk. I've been in encounters with these kids for 45 minutes and heard three words. That was a talking for Non binary people exist. This doesn't mean that there's something wrong with them because they're trans, but they're not trans enough. Trance somewhere in the middle. And being comfortable with that and learning how to take that non binary is really where we all are. We just think that we've got to line strong in the right place. These kids have taught me that that's not the case. Names, pronouns, and gender markers are important for hope, I think. Don't ask about genitals unless it's medically important. At a bus stop, you typically don't ask people waiting for the bus what they're just because you think they're <coughs> trans doesn't entirely do that either. Genital and breast exams can be especially comfort- uncomfortable. Blockers and hormones can be life-saving. The reason I do what I do is because I'm convinced that we're saving lives, that this is life-saving therapy. When we talk to insurance companies who say, well, this is all just cosmetic, I say this is saving us. <coughs> and here are the data. And if that data is not good enough, I send them more.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Because there's a lot of it. This is not something where there's controversy about whether this is true or not. There are no studies that show differently. Training people to know how to do this is important. And remember that the depression and the anxiety that we see in these kids, and we see them in private, it's there for sure. Remember from age three, you've been told, you got it wrong. You're in the wrong space. I'm going to fix it for you. I'm going to smack you around a little bit. I'm going to make you do something that you don't feel And that's where that comes from. And then the last thing that I wanted to say is is this, and this is from the WPATH guidelines, that refusing timely medical interventions for adolescents might prolong their gender dysphoria and contribute to an appearance that provokes abuse and stigmatization at the level of of gender-related abuse is strongly associated with psychiatric distress during adolescence, withholding suppression and subsequent subsequent feminizing and masculinizing hormone therapy is not a neutral option. A lot of parents say, well, why don't we wait? They're they're 12, they're 13, they're 15, they're 16, why don't we just wait until they're 18 and let let them decide that? And part of the reason that we make an argument that that may be problematic for that one person is because this trauma, that sense, that 24-7 sense, is happening every day. Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it.
6: here i'm here to talk more about the psychosocial aspects of um, gender identity first thing is what is gender identity and we've covered this a little bit in terms of what people understand their gender identity but then what is gender dysphoria gender dysphoria is the distressed individual that may accompany the incongruence between an individual's assigned gender. This has assigned gender. These were written in 2013. Now we would generally call it sex assigned at birth. Uh, But this is what the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association calls it. And this is what we use when we're seeing someone and we want to say that this person needs gender-affirming care. We have to use these standards. And so this is the language we have to use. Um, And it's very important to note, as Dr. Sanders said, some people may have this incongruence and not be bothered by it other people it can cause significant um, dysphoria so this is another area that people often get wrong and when you hear people talk about um, the problems with gender-affirming care they have this idea that anyone who may come into a clinic and have some presentation or some behaviors that are not aligned with the gender we think they are that we're suddenly giving them hormones. They're walking out, you know, they're sex assigned female at birth, they're walking out with testosterone. And that is not the case. In order to receive care, you have to have clinically significant distress, which is a very important point. This means that someone has to come in and say they're experiencing distress to the point that it is a medical necessity to intervene. So what is this not? It is not gender play. This is not the four-year-old who is sex assigned male at birth and plays house and may play as the mother figure. That is something normal. We all probably went through that looking at different um, gender play. That's not what we're talking about with gender dysphoria. We're not talking about those who sometimes we hear are a tomboy, so someone sex assigned female at birth who enjoys what we would consider masculine things. Okay, that person may identify as gender diverse or they may just say, I'm female, that's who I am, but I like masculine things. This is not homosexuality, and this was covered a little bit already. An interesting thing about homosexuality is that a lot of times when we hear from uh, groups that are against gender-affirming care, one of the things they'll often say is, well, how do we know that, and we hear this mostly with trans, feminine individuals, how do we know they're not just gay? Well, first of all, that's a switch from what we used to hear because traditionally we heard, how do they know they're gay, right? And now suddenly we're saying, well, how do they know they're not gay? Um, so, which is a little bit of a switch. In this sense, sometimes when you read some of these materials, they'll, they'll talk about you know, these people could just be gay as if they could know that they're gay, but they really can't know what their gender is. This is not a disorder of sexual development that was covered a little bit. This is not a choice. And sometimes talk, people talk about, this is a fad. This is a choice people make. And they say, you know, some people get attention for this, but if you've grown up as gender diverse or a sexual minority, it is not fun. You know, it does not, nobody says, I want to be that gay kid in the high school that always gets picked up. That's not what people want to do. They may say, this is who I am. And I am that person who identifies as gay it's not going to give me a lot of popular press you know it's going to be mostly difficulty so this idea that comes up that there's a bad a new this social contagion that we hear all the time all of these people just suddenly where did all these transgender people come from well first of all gender diversity has been around for ever pretty much we look at this we can see historical documentation that will be covered in a little bit all the way through Um, contemporary times of different people, different presentations, different understandings of gender. Along the way, at some point we decided that we're going to divide people into male and female, as has been discussed a little bit, and say that this is what this person wants and this is what that one wants. And even those senses have changed over time. So if you look at now, if I said what gender is um, related to pink? So who likes pink? Girls, what if I said this back in the early 1900s? The answer would be boys. Why did it change? I'm not exactly sure. But it's completely reversed. You look at some of the pictures people like to show is Franklin Delano Roosevelt in his dress. And that was considered proper at that time. That was considered a sign of sort of his social privilege. Uh, so becoming known does not make something new. Knowledge leads to the possibility. So we have the same thing with um, homosexuality. We know that people have always engaged in sex with people that have the same genitalia as them. Were they, quote, gay? No. They may have engaged in the same acts that we would now associate with someone who is gay, but that doesn't mean they were, quote, gay at the time, because the identities have changed. So. Now, people who do engage in that can say, okay, something that goes along with this is to be identifying as gay. And they may go with that. At the same time, they may not. There are a lot of individuals who may have a penis and interact sexually with someone else who has a penis who say, I'm not gay. And we could, other people could say, well, yes, you are. I mean, if you're doing that, you're gay. But that's not true, because this is a self-identity Um, also, we also have this idea of homosexuality, you know, that for a long time there was this idea that homosexuality just popped up too, you know, this whole social contagion then, like all of a sudden all these people were suddenly becoming gay all the time, you know, and there's that whole idea like, well, if if I let my child know a gay person, it might, you know, wear off on them and they may become gay as well. We know, and even people who question gender, um, dysphoria and gender-affirming care, most of them aren't saying they could, the gay could rub off on them. They're saying, no, the transgender part could rub off on them. Again, an interesting little switch. And I often talk about this in terms of, like, ADHD. We hear this all the time now. Where did ADHD come from? Like, all these kids are suddenly ADHD. Well, as someone who teaches the um, DSM, I can tell you, ADHD was in the original DSM. That was published back in the 50s. It was there, and it was understood as far back as the early 1900s. There's documentation of what we would now call ADHD. So yes, it has become more discussed. That doesn't mean it it just suddenly appeared. So what do we know about mental health? This has been covered. We have increased um, substance use, self-harm, suicidality, uh, and uh, mental health concerns. Interesting thing, when people talk about this, they look at this question of which came first. You know, something being related doesn't mean something causes it, unless we can have some part of a temporal relationship here. And so we have gender dysphoria and we have mental health concerns. Now, we can treat them in two different ways. If we treat the gender dysphoria by providing some sort of gender affirming hormones or social support for social um, transition, we know that depression goes down. We know that anxiety goes down. We know that suicidality goes down. It doesn't work the other way. If we start treating someone's depression, they don't suddenly go, oh, I guess I'm not transgender because I'm not as depressed right now. So it only goes in one direction, which gives us a sense that of um, causation, which would just really say that this is a lot of social judgment. This is a lot of personal judgment. This is not just social judgment. People judge themselves. If you are someone who's growing up and don't identify with your body, you've been taught to judge yourself very much. It's the same thing we see with um, sexual minorities. They've been taught to judge themselves. They've been taught that what they feel is negative. So they have self-judgment and social judgment. And if we can treat the dysphoria and help them understand themselves and others understand them, we know the negative effects go down. And we also know if we don't treat the gender dysphoria, the effects go up. They build over time. Um, So this has been covered a little bit. Can they really know? So we also get this question about puberty always comes up and parents are like, they weren't transgender till they met other kids that were transgender and that happens in about middle school or high school. Okay, well as we grow up, pressure to conform increases. You know, it's sometimes cute that you're, you know, your little, what you believe is your little girl, you know, plays with boys, or it's kind of cute, you know, my boy likes to play dolls, he really likes to do it with um, his with sister, and they play, and that's kind of cute and fun. By the time you reach late um, elementary school or such, the pressure to conform is pretty strong. It's also when we hit puberty. Now, as Dr. Fornberry described, puberty is a time we start to see youth a lot because that's when their body is saying, this is your sex assigned at birth, this is what you, this is who you are, and the youth is saying, no, I'm not. And that's where the large dysphoria comes from. Um, so what about, how do they really know? Well, they know because they say they know. We accept that in many areas of their lives. We don't say, you know, how do you know you like playing the trombone? Well because I like playing the trombone. There's no test for a trombone player, right? We identify, we let them identify as they want. Does it change over time? Perhaps, but we understand youth and let them um, identify that way. Again, this comes back to the homosexuality point where we we used to question, well, how do they know they're gay at this point? Although now people have started going, okay, I can accept that by adolescence, they can understand that they're gay. Okay, why is it that they can understand who they want to have sex with, but they can't understand who they are? So what if they're wrong? Okay, they're, quote, wrong here. Understandings can change over time. Social transition is fully reversible. So if you're someone who was sex assigned female at birth, and you had long hair and dressed what we would consider feminine, and you said, you know, I think I may be more masculine, I may be transgender, I may be gender non-binary, I'm going to cut my hair, I'm going to dress more traditionally masculine, and you go, okay, this doesn't quite fit with me either, I'm going to grow my hair out and present more either non-binary or feminine. Nothing has really changed in your physical, well, in your um, non-reversible manner, right? You just go back to how you were looking before. Sure, it was stressful. I'm not going to deny that. I'm not going to deny that transitioning socially is difficult. And it's going to be difficult to, re- to go back to where you were. However, that does not mean it's not reversible. Okay, we also have these WPA standards. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's some in- misinformation standing outside of DeBarlo over there. Um, that suggests that all these things are happening. I was reading some of it, like a 12-year-old who had their penis cut off surgically. Okay, I'm not going to deny that happened to someone. But that is not gender-affirming care, as you would see in a proper gender clinic. And Dr. Fornberry talked about that already. There are a lot of steps to go through. We go through the medical assessment. We go through the psychosocial assessment. That's what I do. We talk about their history. How do they understand themselves? If someone says, you know, this is kind of new to me, I'm really trying to explore it, then we say, okay, let's take a moment, let's let you explore it. Let's maybe give you a mental health therapist who can help you understand yourself. We don't just say, well, you know, you came in here, you came to the gender clinic, so you are automatically transgender male because you came here. No, we give them time. We also require child and parental consent. Now that gets a little fuzzier as you get to late adolescence, but as with any medical procedure, you have to have consent. That also leads to some difficulties, and what um, Dr. Foranberry talked about in a lot of care with uh, uh, parents. So, my question then is, what if they are right? Instead of saying that they might be wrong, what if they're right? Well, if we help them we know their psychosocial functioning improves we know they have increased authenticity we know they have enhanced understanding of themselves and they really have this opportunity to live as who they are and achieve their life goals as they feel they are we know that this keeps them from having that significant dysphoria it gives them the life that they want so to me i'd rather we accept them and say, I think you are right for who you are, than to say, Well, I'm not sure if you might actually be wrong, because what's important to us as clinicians is to be able to help them live their life to the fullest, and that is what we do, and that is why we affirm them in what they say they are. And now I. Um, <laughs> And now I give it to Dr. Ju to talk about Joe, talk about um, the uh, material from the Kinsey Institute.
7: Good afternoon. I'm just so grateful to be here. Um, I learned so much from the expert uh, panelists here, and I wonder why I'm here. (laughs) Uh, So um, I think that I want to illustrate the aspect of affirming care for um, for our topic today, uh, uh, affirming care for gender uh, diverse youth through archives. Um, By self-creating your archives, by accessing archives, because I think part of the story is really the archives, uh, oftentimes we think uh, of them as uh, distant, dusty past. But what I want you to think is really living and breathing archives, and that is part of your own history. Uh, So oftentimes that we have so many young, Uh, you know, college students coming to our collections and seeing the objects, Uh, and I remember one time when I was showing people what we have. I don't know if you heard of the eight pagers, and I wish I had uh, uh, brought some, um, you know, slides, but come to Kinsey Institute or explore our website. But those eight pagers are the um, comic books produced and very popular in 1920s. And they are very explicit, so uh, you know when people came to Kinsey uh, Institute, is that uh, you know wanting to know but don't want to show that uh, desire to know. So I said, you know, you can think of the um, eight pages as YouTube's uh, content for nineteen, you know, twenties, and everyone got it. You know, just think, oh my goodness, you know, that's true. It's it's YouTube's uh, for. Um, of our grandparents' generation. So I think what we are trying to say is affirming your sexuality and your identity through self-empowerment, because I think everyone is so resilient, and I think story said in the stories at Kinsey Institute, it's really about the struggles and overcoming the struggles, and really find that strength and to voice your... Um, um, your stories, and I think that is uh, the living, breathing archives that I would like to introduce to all of you. But I did uh, prepare a, a s- just a small <laughs> remarks that I want to make sure I cover everything. Um, so I, um, I consider myself as a uh, custodian of the collection uh, at the Kinsey Institute, and uh, the library was actually founded by Alfred C. <coughs> Kinsey. Uh, who's a pioneer sex researcher, and his uh, um, research of human sexuality was published in two milestone publications. One is known as Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, that was in 1947, and the companion volume came out in 1953, titled as Sexual Behavior in the Human Female. So when he started studying um, human sexuality and people, um, you know, he didn't come in to say I have all the answers. He was really there trying to find the baseline and how people behave sexually. So um, there are many people (coughs) come to him to say that uh, we have different questions, we have gender questions. So very brilliantly, he turns the question to a colleague of uh, of his, uh, named Harry Benjamin, you heard of uh, standards of care multiple times through our um, Dr. Sanders and Fulton, Dr. Fulton Berry. and those are actually created by Harry Benjamin. So uh, and his uh, colleagues at the time, and has a very unique name. It's called uh, uh, International Association of uh, gender uh, dysphoria, but it's Harry Benjamin, so it's a Habita in short. And then later on was named the W-Path. So, um, so the reason I want to mention Harry Benjamin because he was known as the very first uh, physician to provide care to transgender uh, individuals. And very brilliantly, there was another um, colleague of his, uh, by the name of Mia Schaefer who wrote a really wonderful article called The First 10 Cases of a Harry Benjamin's Patient. Because Harry Benjamin never treated any transgender individuals. So he's really, so the patients have such self-knowledge and expression to enable the physician to deliver service and help that they need. So the first 10 cases, And I really invite you to study that, to read that, because it's just so wonderful. So they, um, and I think it speaks of self-knowledge, self-determination, and resilience. So um, later on, Harry Benjamin, I think one of the discovery of uh, um, Dr. Kinsey, was really to establish our sexual behavior as a spectrum. It's not, uh, you know, binary. And then, uh, described the gender as the um, spectrum in 1960s in his book, The Phenomena of uh, Transsexualism. So uh, come back to the library. So Dr. Kinsey uh, built the library and the first in the U.S. at the time in 1947 and now the largest in the world. So our library is a living and growing monument for Dr. Kenzie's legacy, which is really to fill the gap in our human knowledge about sexuality. So what do we have? Uh, we have uh, over um, you know, half million items of uh, books, magazines, films, photographs, artifacts, clothing items from the Roman time to the present. Um, <clears throat> So what do we have beyond the numbers? Um, I, so I mentioned uh, um, about the studies uh, of some of the researchers. So we have Harry Benjamin, and we have Hebigda, we have WPATH, and you also remember Quad S uh, mentioned a couple of times. We have those individuals and organizational records at Kinsey Institute. Uh, We also have self-expressions, you know, when people writing to the uh, physicians or to their friends or to someone that they uh, think may share the same condition, there's uh, such a power in their words, you know, as their uh, correspondence or letters or drawings or art, artifacts. So we have those uh, self-expressions of struggles, relationships, intimacy, um, as expressed in the, uh, in the objects or text um, materials. We also have uh, cultural and commercial productions of sexuality, such as you know, films, DVDs, and uh, photo albums. You think of anything as uh, um, artistic, cultural, and commercial, and all of uh, those categories would have elements of sexuality and gender expressions in them. So the most important thing is what do we do with them? So uh, we wish them to uh, educate and to inform and inspire more research, better understanding of our common humanity. And we wish our collection uh, to remain relevant uh, because to our times. So one of the things that there's a reference of the, uh, you know, any sexual expression that we experience, it's definitely new to us individually, but it's not new to us collectively. So if you look at the Kinsey uh, records, there is a very well-known German um, physician and sex researcher by the name of uh, Matthias Hirschfeld. So Hirschfeld archives, the only surviving archives is at the Kinsey Institute, and in his collection, there was uh, a letter dated in 1902, stating the desire of uh, transformation. I mean, it's a written documentation, and we know it's not uh, you know created in the 50s, 70s, or 90s. So it's it's really about records uh, of our human behavior, and that's the library's. Uh, um, Responsibility to keep those records, and we definitely wish them to be preserved for, for prosperity. And while every time you you know when we read something about a collection under danger or being harmed uh, by natural forces, it just uh, occurred to me, you know, like you can take hundreds of years to build something. In Kenzie Library case, 75, more than 75 years, it can just uh, take a few moments to destroy, you know, for whatever reason. So when we say preservation is not a uh, you know beautiful slogan, it's really hard work. It requires resources, institutional invest uh, investment, and also scholars, you know, just demand Just demanding the institution pay attention to those records, but most importantly, keep a record of your own growth and your own struggle and to inspire someone by your story. Because I think people think of archive as something, you know, well defined, but I really want to think it's openly defined, everyone should have their own archives. Um, and I think that is something that we wish our archives to be inspiration um, for, um, for all our users and our students. <coughs> and um, we want our collection to be discoverable, um, to, be, um, to be available. So very recently we worked with a publishing company to digitize selected collections of Kinsey Institute. And it's a database called Sex and Sexuality. And uh, it's really for the first time to make uh, the Kinsey collection available to um, university libraries and campuses. So I really think that is one of the uh, um, major achievements on our part. And we are very careful with um, you know, privacy and confidentiality. So um, every single record uh, was uh, examined and uh, redacted if there's identifying information. So the Kinsey Library um, has this important um, records of uh, human um, behavior and gender expression. It has a role in advancing um, sexual and gender health and knowledge worldwide. And um, I'm just so proud that uh, um, you know I we have the trust and the confidence of many of the donors um, who um, entrusted us with their records. So I um, I thought to mention a few, just uh, if that's okay. Okay, just one. Yes, I'll just mention one. Um, So we have uh, um, the. The um, Intersex Society of North America, uh, that is the archives that's really unique. Um, a very, so it's really a community <coughs> records, and individual records. Uh, it's not necessarily a professional, you know, like someone is in the field of uh, helping or studying. So it's really about self-expression and self-study. So I hope that uh, you will get a chance to use our collection. Um, Anyway, I probably should uh, conclude, but I'm just so pleased that you welcome us uh, to be on this beautiful campus. And I uh, welcome you to come to Kinsey Institute to use our library and collections.
2: a Q&A,
8: time for Q&A, and so I'm going to run around and get this mic to folks if anybody has a question. <laughs> Hello, hi, my name is Kendrick Peterson, I am both the trombone player and <laughs> the president of PRISM-ND, the LGBTQ+ US organization here on this campus. As Professor Pam Butler has already mentioned, we are so thankful to have you all here. Like, we haven't had discussions like this at the University of I don't think even in my time here very much so we really appreciate all of you coming. Um, so my question is for Dr. Brandon please. Uh Just really quick, so we have seen an increasing difficulty in proving to like our fellow classmates the concept of affirming identities in the collegiate sphere. So after students are already at the University of Notre how important is it truly to affirm someone's identity? Can you please speak more on that kind of idea of affirming, or maybe all of you speak more on that concept of affirming identities after someone is already in, I suppose, the later stages of their academic life in, at, at a college or at an institution, especially when they're alone without their parents or guardians. Thank you so much. John.
6: I think, first of all, the importance of affirming is there's nothing that is more important. As uh, Dr. Fortenberry said, just using someone's proper pronouns and the name that they say is theirs is incredibly affirming to them. (coughs) And that is critical at any stage of individual's lives. I would say it's particularly important, both in adolescence and then in young adulthood, as that's the time people are really developing their, um, the ways they're gonna to present to their others in the future. And I think if we take that time, that's supposed to be this time of academic and intellectual growth, and throw in there a lot of self-questioning or self-doubt or judgment on them, then we're hampering not only their self-identity um, development, but also their academic ability in that sense. What was the second
9: part? Oh, okay. yeah. um, hi everyone. Thank you, first of all, for coming. Um, this is a breath of fresh air on this <laughs> campus, that's for sure. Um, my name is Anissa, i senior. Um, I want to ask, I guess, all of you, um, and maybe Dr. Fortenberry, Dr. Friedman more specifically, um, about expression and if you believe that maybe like the lessening of a binary um, or like the binaries that we live in as a culture if you think that that would result in maybe people feeling um, less people feeling the need to identify necessarily as transgender and being just more comfortable with feeling a certain way and not to say that that's like a bad thing or anything but saying that um, with the lessening of binaries do you think or have studies shown that um, there's less of like a dysphoria to the whole experience i guess that's what my question is thank you
5: well if i if i understand correctly the this is an, i do think this is a space that we can learn a lot from as, as people examine this and understand that a binary is not necessary for human function. That we can do all of the social kinds of things that we need to do without that distinction. From a clinical perspective it's important to me because it helps me have discussions with young people about the fact that they can understand their gender and express their gender and live their gender. And there may be ways to do that without changing their bodies necessarily. They can a part of this, I think, is being able to express who you are and live who you are and then having the body that you have. And we only have one body. But being able to live and express that. And and, If I actually had a goal in in the world, is that young people could walk out of our clinic without ever thinking that they needed surgery to change the body. there are reasons to do those kinds of interventions and they're meaningful interventions. But I think as an ideal the kind of thing that you're talking about is exactly the way I've come to understand it more. I
6: think one thing I would say to that is if you took a look at this idea of breaking down the binary and how difficult that is because it's so <coughs> entrenched in our society some places, you've got a little more flexibility here, unless things have drastically changed in the last 15 years, you have male dorms and female dorms. But that is enforcing a binary right there. And you are either in one or you are in the other. There is no gender-neutral dorm, and even if there was, I don't know that would be the best way to put it. Like, you are the ones who don't fit in either of these, and we're going to put you in this dorm over here. So I think when we start thinking about that, that shows how entrenched it is. But also thinking about flexibility. We don't have that binary in many of our other places in our life. It's not like you either like you either like pizza, you don't like pizza. You could sort of kinda of like pizza, you know? And so why do we say you're either male or female? You can't be somewhere in between.
10: Hi there, my name is Link. I'm also a student here. And yeah, I'll say up front, I, I believe that. Uh, there is a kind of binary. There's male, female, um, and that, and and, and all that goes with that. The gender, sexuality, and sexual identity um, are, are tied up. But uh, but I'm happy to be here to always uh, look for something new to learn and get more educated on what um, you know. You guys who are in the field actually actually know about this. Um, so I appreciate your honesty and the and the rigor with which you fight for this. Precisely because there are lives at risk, right? and, uh, and that's really the main concern that I think we all share. But I'd like to ask a question, I guess, um, about the conversation, especially with those who are I guess, on my side of the aisle, um, too. It seems like whenever we, we try to express the way we see things and, uh, and how we feel like this is all rather um, new for us, at least. Um, anytime we, we try to do that, it seems like we're, uh, we're in some sense, scared into, into silence, that you'll be called to certain things, or, or, or they'll assume certain things about us, so that we don't care about people who do um, struggle with any of these issues. Um, so, if you could speak about about the conversation in general, and ways in which you think that we could maybe be a little more uh, productive
5: in the way we, we talk to each other, I have to say I think it's a really critical thing. The reason I think it's critical is because this is the world we live in, and when we talk to parents when we work with parents, <coughs> part of what that work entails, is exactly helping those parents understand their child from a perspective that they think the child doesn't fit into. And part of the part of the journey that I hope we take with them is that they begin to understand that the child they have is the child they always have. And the love they have for that child is the love for the child they always had, not the child that with the ribbons when they were born and it seemed different and so we got to match that. So part of what I think we have to do in the clinic is be perceptive to hear those very points of struggle and recognize that that struggle is as real as the one that children have. It, the stakes may be a bit different, but I think discounting it is a I think it's the it's the thing that causes damage because we do see parents where they come in and say, I'm afraid to say this, but I need to say it. And when when that happens we know that we need to sit back and listen better and make sure that we're hearing all of that. So I think it's a really critical point. I really thank you for for making it because that's, the, that's part of the journey that I think we have to do. And our, the kids that we see have to live in that world as well. And they have to know what that's about. That I'd like to add to that, that um, <clears throat> you
4: know, the majority of the world, uh, in our world in the United States, sees gender as binary. Uh, and most people are cisgender and most people are heterosexual. And it's uh, obviously very true of a lot of the parents that are dealing with the children who um, are different in, in different ways. And one thing that we have to acknowledge is that, that as parents, it's hard if if kid's different for you in, in any way, you imagined a future for them that was similar to the kinds of things you've experienced. When this is going on, that, that shakes that, right? And so parents do have to go through uh, experiencing a kind of reconceptualization and loss—a loss of that, that image that they had—and um, that's why you know caring for not for for the kids and the parents is really important because without the parental support, it's going to be a really difficult transition. Um, so I just would add that we have to have that conversation. We have to acknowledge diversity, but also not make people feel guilty for having
7: questions, and, and sometimes fears. I, uh, I, just want to, uh, I just want to add something in terms of using library and archives as part of the conversation. There are so many documentaries and there are so many publications. Um, you know, in a way that I think uh, it's so unique to the, uh, to the family who all the news is, uh, um, is new and fresh, and struggling is uh, is raw, but I think having other community support, knowing um, you know they are not alone. I, I think having resources, um, you know, demand to have resources of your university libraries, public libraries. I think uh, it's a it's a very um, empowering um, step uh, for the family and for um, for the children as well.
6: Questions? Hi, my name is uh, Tracy, and I'm a grad student here. So I'm at uh, the age where I have, uh, you know, nephews and nieces. I'm sure a lot of people our age have nephews and nieces or maybe even children of their own. Uh, and, you know, they these, these children that we know personally might be going through some of these things, and I was wondering if you had
8: any sort of actionable advice to uh, help in in that sort of situation. Like, I have a pretty good grasp on the theory myself, but I, I
6: don't know when's the right time to say, okay, we need to get you to
5: This idea that when a kid tells you they are that you respect that, that you trust that, and that that you try not to spend too much time policing their identity. And so I I personally think that it's not a it's not a lights and siren trip to the to the ER, but I do think that it's worth recognizing that as best we can tell the longer kids put up with repetitive trauma the harder it is for them as they move along and the greater the risk of really serious adverse consequences. So I push sooner rather than later. When you hear that kid and you hear that kid for weeks and not years but weeks you hear that you know the, the DSM-5 guidelines say six months, I think that's actually a bit long, but that's what it takes, that's what it would take, but I don't think there's any reason why you wouldn't start seeking an affirmative place to say, this is what we're hearing from our kid, you can listen to them too, this is where we think we need to do to support the kid, What other resources can you help us connect to so that this kid can do well in school, can do well in our community, can sort of come to our family gatherings with their head up, all of those things that you expect. And so sooner rather than later, I think, is my guide. I think one thing I would say
6: would be even just giving them this, space to explore. There's no reason, as he done with the youth, that they have to be forced in one way or the other. Just let them express themselves and explore who they are. And I think that's the most important part. And then, as Dr. Fornberry said, when it starts to really, you start to recognize that there is a lot of that distress, that's when you would suggest that you go to a clinic uh, such as ours. Now, sort of to the previous point, is that you also have to recognize where the parents are. So one thing I often say to the youth that get to our clinic is that you got here in a journey and your journey took a long time probably. Your parents journey started the day you generally officially came out to them and said, hey parent, I think I'm transgender. That's where their journey started. Okay? Now, other people might say, well, you know, sometimes we hear, well, how did they not know? Well, they, whether they, whether they quote, new or not, isn't the important part, but you have to be able to support them where they are. My goal with people to come into the clinic is to give them that space. And that part of that is why we don't do any sort of medical intervention during pre-puberty. And we also have to work with the parent. I don't want any parent to come in and feel shame about it. Part of my job as a clinician is to help the parents understand. And I think, as Dr. Formberry said, we give them that space. And sometimes when I ask them, how are you doing? And really say, no, I want to know how you're doing. That's when they feel that permission to really break down and say, you know, I'm really struggling with this. And it's my job as a clinician there to help them as much as it helps the youth, because really helping a parent helps the youth in the first place. And that doesn't mean they will always come to a perfect agreement. That does not mean that after coming to our clinic for time, that a parent might not say, you know, I get this, I want to support my kid, but I really don't agree with it. But we're gonna just learn to live together. I don't feel that any parent has to be forced one way or the other. I would like them to get there. I would like them to get to a place where they're all in a solid agreement and understanding of each other. But I don't want any parent to feel judged when
10: they come to (coughs) our clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, My name is Martin Soto. And my partner, she works in this space, and every single day, she comes home with a big stack of books and a smile on her face, excited to get through this day's reading. Now, by the end of the night, she doesn't have a smile. Like, very rarely does she have a decent smile or even seems to feel very good about what she's read because there's a lot of um, involved reading and a lot of uh, (coughs) stressful stuff that we come across in these readings about uh, what transgender people experience in their daily lives. Now, one time she came home having done interviews and stuff like that with people in the field, and she was absolutely radiant. And so the question I have for you guys is what forms of self-love do you engage in to kind of keep yourself fed through this process, which to me seems to be very um, taxing, you know, asks a lot of you personally, so how do you guys keep yourselves fed?